I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. That's the taste of uh, an American weed beer that I brewed myself, and it is fucking good. Mm. It could probably uh, be a little richer, but I'm not going to fucking complain. It is quite the tasty beverage, especially when it's as hot as hell outside, and it is as hot as hell. But that's not going to stop me, the heat or anything else for that matter, from delivering you another week of Nine Cents. Welcome. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. As always, and as always, it is always great to have you. That's a lot of always is. Ziz, ziz, ziz. <laughs> it's July the 17th. I do have a great show for you this week. I have a very special guest for you for the next couple of weeks, actually. Today, the very special guest is none other than Reverend Moore from Arkham Studios. If you are not familiar with his work, get your ass over to Arkham-Studios.com and check it out. It's absolutely amazing stuff. I'm going to be talking to him in the last segment, Creature Feature, of this week's podcast. You know, and I, I just sort of wanted to talk a little bit about scheduling and, and interviews and such. Sometimes, when I reach out to people, they're a little bit hesitant to allow me to interview them. Uh, I can't even speak here. Uh, and I can understand that, because I am relatively new on the scene. I've only been running this podcast since the first week of February of this year. So, I, I'm very green. My interviewing skills aren't really up to par as of yet. At, at least, not up to par as I would like them to be. I stammer, and I stutter, and I don't feel it is as... You know, just as fluid in general as I think it could be. And sometimes I think when I reach out to people, they think I'm going to paint them in a particular light, negative or amateur, or or maybe I just will be some high school kid trying to catch a ride on someone else's, I don't know, hard work or something. But... I know that the audience that listens to my show understands that that's not the case. You know, I'm not trying to impress anyone. I'm trying to deliver something that I find really quite intriguing or worthwhile and bring it out to those in the audience who may not know about it or may be unfamiliar with it or perhaps want to know a little bit more about it. So that's my goal, is to get out there and deliver those pieces of media, those other podcasts, those other personalities, or maybe just people who work in specific fields I find interesting. So, if I have contacted you, and you were hesitant before, maybe, uh, you know, just just keep in mind that I'm not doing it for me. You know, I'm really not getting anything out of it. 
I'm doing it for you to let everyone else out there be aware of you or maybe know a little bit more about you. You know, in this digital age we live in, everyone's connected on some level. You know, whether we are as little as a linked friend in a social networking page or if we go and share a brew on the weekend. We're all connected in some way or another. And the satanic community is is very, very connected through multiple mediums. Uh, you know, just immediately we have uh, Undercroft, which is a fantastic social networking site that you can connect with. And spawning from Undercroft, which is actually, you know, the grandfather of Undercroft, was Letters to the Devil, a message board. Um, you also have the newer versions of social media like Facebook and, and Google Plus that allow us to connect with each other. And what it's done is brought us all together. But just because you have that, you know, digital connection doesn't mean you actually know anything about the person. Uh, and so that's my goal, ultimately, I think, is just to, you know, bring people that I find interesting to you. And I hope I do it a little bit. <laughs> if I can do it a little bit, then I have succeeded. If I can do it, you know, greatly, well, then that's even fucking better. And I think, you know, I'm working on it. I'll get there. I also wanted to talk to you about this week, uh, about camping. I just got back from camping with some friends. And if you're actually on Google+, Plus, you can see those pictures. Uh, we went camping the place we had to drive almost three hours to get to because we thought it would be a, a better atmosphere, a richer atmosphere, a richer experience. And it wasn't. It was just the most overpopulated. It reminded me of when I was a kid watching uh, uh, Disney cartoons in the early mornings. And you'd see those like really old Disney cartoons where like Goofy would take his family on a camp out. But they would end up being in this sort of metropolis of campers. That's what we ended up in last night. It was it was not very cool at all. And when I go camping, I want the ability to walk 20 feet away from the campfire and take a leak. But if I would have done that, I would have been taking a leak in another campground, you know, another person's space, which is really aggravating. I don't like the idea of going to a campground where you literally have air-conditioned toilets. I think that is... It's insane. It's not even camping at all. So, aside from the facility, I had a great time. I think the kids had a really great time, and I'm hoping the friends that we went out with had a great time as well. Uh, but I am I am really tired. There's a lot of cleaning to be done from that uh, camp out, and I have a mild headache due to the probably toxic fumes that I was inhaling from the fire <laughs> and all the drinking. I think I'm a little dehydrated. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I'm going off on a rant here. In the Devil's Advocate this week, I'm going to be talking about um, relationships uh, in the COS. I'm going to expound on what not only I talked about just a moment ago, but I'm going to go into uh, perceptions and apologists. In Infernal Informant, I have an article called Austrian Atheist Wins Right to Driving License Photo Wearing a Pasta Strainer as Religious Headgear. 
And I also have another one called Sister Wives, Stars to Challenge Utah Bigamy Law. And as I've already mentioned in the Creature Feature, I have Reverend Moore with Arkham Studios. I'm going to be talking to him about the studios and about him. And I'm not sure I'm going to get to a Bizarre of the Bizarre this week, so I'm probably going to hold off until next week. But next week I have a really great guest too, so um, I'm not sure I'll hit that. So we may be sitting out from that for a little while. Either way, let's go ahead and move on into The Devil's Advocate. In this arid wilderness of steel and stone, I'll raise up my voice that you may hear. To the east and to the west I beckon, to the north and to the south. I show a sign proclaiming a death to the weakling, wealth to the strong. Can I get a hail Satan? I said, can I get a hail Satan? We are the Devil's Advocates. Welcome to the Devil's Advocate. As always, let me preface this segment by saying that I am a Satanist. I am a member of the Church of Satan, but I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. I joined the Church of Satan quite a number of years ago. Uh, It was uh, 1998. No, it was 97, actually. And, um, yeah, 1997. It was uh, a long time ago, and during that time, I have met a number of really, really fantastic people. I've met a lot of really fantastic people that are Satanists. I've met an equal number that are members of the Church of Satan, and the same amount that aren't even affiliated at all. Out of those people... Some of them have views that I like, some have views that I don't like, but that doesn't matter because you take a person on the whole, not in pieces. At least when, when I take someone uh, as a friend, I don't compartmentalize them. It's really their, the way they talk to me, the way they uh, deal with me, how honest and real they are as human beings. Um, I think those are the most important aspects that I find uh, intriguing for friends. Uh, And then, you know, after that you have similarities and likes and dislikes, but they don't always cross. So when I started this podcast and I started interviewing different members of the COS and uh, we would often talk about former friends, um, or former members of the COS, or or former acquaintances from the COS, and people who have joined the church, and people who have left the church, and invariably it seems that whenever you talk about someone who was a former member, and who left, whenever they were a friend, it seems like they have to apologize for it. It seems like people are compelled to justify why they liked that person. I don't fucking care. You know, it doesn't matter to me. And I don't think that, I mean, it would be very arrogant of me to think that they're doing it for my sake. And I don't think that's the case. I, I think at some level, because we we are a, a part of 
a philosophy of an organization, the Church of Satan, that is, in one hand, so rigid, and in the other, so fluid, that when you relate to people who have moved on, you feel like there's there there has to be some reason because, you know, when someone's in the Church of Satan, a member of the Church of Satan, they're not going to come out and say, well, I don't really believe about this and this and this. Um, I mean, not often. Uh, but I believe the majority of it, so I'm going to you know pretend like I'm a Satanist for a while. There are pretenders. Uh, and I mean, there are actually a lot of pretenders. Not a lot of them join the COS, but some do, and some are still members of the COS. Um, they just haven't either out of themselves or uh, haven't been recognized and booted out for being such. Um, but just because you know one of them, it doesn't mean you're one of them. And just because you get along with one of them, it doesn't mean you are one of them. You know? I mean, I know just from growing up, just for existing, I know a lot of drug users. That doesn't mean that I'm some crazy drug user myself. That doesn't mean I'm an apologist for drug users. I mean, if someone wants to fucking self-destruct, I'm not going to fucking stand in their way. I don't care. You know, this guilt by association factor in life in general seems to be a little, you know, crazy. But when it's something like the COS, you know, when you're talking to other people in the COS, it seems like we have to justify that. And like I said before, I don't think it's to me, I don't think it's to the audience, I think perhaps it's to themselves. There has to be some rationalization for them. Because you know, in, in some aspects, we are a, a part of something that is so rigid because it's a part of us. But we're also human beings. And I just always found it interesting, and this is why I wanted to talk about it today. Um, you know, you have members who were, on one hand, devote and powerful influences within the church who have moved away for their own reasons, and then either evolve their way of seeing the philosophy, or devolve it, depending on your perspective. But you know what? Let them do their thing. Who cares? I mean, yes, disassociate them with the Church of Satan immediately, because they no longer represent what it stands for. But it doesn't mean that they're any less successful of an individual, less powerful of an individual, or um, less interesting, you know, less worth knowing. I know a lot of uh, Christians who I find very interesting. And if there was some line saying you cannot have any Christian friends, well, then I would be, you know, fucking all over that line. I, I just, I think it's absurd to limit yourself. More importantly... Because we're Satanists doesn't mean that that's all we are. So, we have to be able to understand that there are aspects of our lives, and this is that fluid part I was talking about before, that we're not all going to see eye to eye with. There's a lot of organizations that are affiliated with the COS. 
But just because you're not a member of those organizations or you don't subscribe to those organizations' newsletters or you don't agree with everything that those organization members believe or think, that doesn't make you less of a fucking Satanist or less of a human being. It makes you powerful and an individual. That makes you stronger, that you can stand up. That makes you a Satanist. That's what we are. So to think that because you're an individual and you have individual friends outside that have different philosophies, different ideas, maybe former COS, maybe never even introduced to the COS, that doesn't fucking matter. That doesn't mean anything. It just means that you are willing to give people you find worthy a chance to be a good friend to you or to learn from them, whether it's a professional or personal reasons. Or just to experience them. You know, for the most part, I think people are horrible. Horrible, horrible creatures. Uh, Really not worth spending an hour to ten minutes on. You know what I mean? But I do find gems. And I'm, I'm positive everyone else does too. So just because those gems that you find aren't in line with your ideas or your understandings or your beliefs doesn't make a fucking bit of difference. It doesn't change who you are. It doesn't change what you know is real. You know, I mean, you're not suddenly going to fucking throw on a fucking uh, yarmulke and fucking spin a dreidel just because you might have a Jewish friend. You know, it doesn't fucking matter. Uh, and, and that's sort of you know, just what I wanted to talk about this week. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm hearing it so often that I just find it really amazing that people genuinely, because I'm, I'm really accepting about, you know, the idea that someone, you know, might believe something different. And I, I know that not everyone is. So I always find it interesting when someone comes to me and says, well, I, you know, I, I, I still like this person, even though they did this or they, they were a part of that or whatever. Um, you know, it, it's amazing to me that they feel like they have to justify it to themselves, you know. And this could be former members of the COS that were in ranking positions, or uh, it could just be some fucking dude or chick on the street that means nothing to anyone but you. Never justify yourself. You don't have to. You're fucking Satanist, and if you don't know that already. You know, I'm not going to fucking, I'm not going to look at you any different because of who you've known (laughs) I mean we we live in a world full of crazy fucking people chances are you're gonna know someone that's fucking retarded everyone does you can't get away from it sometimes that's part of the problem (laughs) but that doesn't mean you are that way you know so uh, that's really all I want to talk about in the devil's advocate Uh, it, it it was not directly concerning uh, the COS, as I've done this segment in the past, but I think it has bearing on us as Satanists and members. And you know what? Take it as a fucking dear Abby if you want. But this is stuff that I think people already know and and already understand. But because we're human, we tend to try to justify our reasonings. We don't have to do that. You know, there's no reason to. Be who you are, and that's a powerful Satanist, and that's all that matters. Um. All right, so let's go ahead and move into the Infernal Format, shall we? Uh. 
everybody is of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, all in the inferno format. Alright, the article I'm going to be reading, <clears throat> excuse me, is actually from DA, I'm sorry, DMANLT.com. Um, it's just a, a blog here. Austrian atheist wins right to driving license photo wearing a pasta strainer as religious headgear. And this was posted July 13th. Quote, an Austrian atheist has won the right to be shown on his driver's license photo wearing a pasta strainer as religious headgear. Nico Alm first applied for the license three years ago after reading that headgear was allowed in official pictures only for confessional reasons. Mr. Alm said the sieve was a requirement of his religion, Pastafarianism. The Austrian authorities required him to obtain a doctor's certificate that he was psychologically fit to drive. The idea came into Mr. Alm's noodle three years ago as a way of making a serious, if ironic, point. A self-confessed atheist, Mr. Alm says he belongs to the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, a light-hearted faith whose members call themselves Pastafarians. The group's website states that the only dogma allowed in the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster is the rejection of dogma. In response to pressure for American schools to teach the Christian theory known as intelligent design as an alternative to natural selection, the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster wrote to the Kansas School Board asking for the Pastafarian version of intelligent design to be taught to school children as an alternative to the Christian theory. Yes. That's actually the end of the blog. And if you see this, it's literally just a guy with a, like a noodle strainer on his head. Outside of that, just being capping his head like a ball cap, like a sideways ball cap or something, he's you know completely normal looking. And this is you know on on one hand it's it's really funny and you know I guess it's a point on the scoreboard of atheist versus Christian or atheist versus Muslim. Uh, or atheist versus um, uh, Judaism, because you know he he's allowed to wear the same ridiculous headgear that they are allowed to wear, whether it's a yarmulke or whether it's a full face covering hood. But it doesn't make it any less fucking stupid, you know. W- we tend to look at this as if it's some sort of game. As if we're trying to make points and whoever has the most points at the end wins. It's not ever going to fucking happen. There's no winning in this. Judeo-Christians, I'm sorry, Islamic Judeo-Christians have murdered more people for religious reasons than anyone else in the history of history. making fucking points like this is not going to make him go away. I think it's sad to say, but it's a reality. You're not going to make them suddenly see that, oh, wow, 
it is kind of ridiculous that I'm wearing a face mask. That's not going to fucking matter. So who is this guy trying to make the point to? If he's trying to make the point to the rest of the public, well, he's making a point that we already fucking know. We already understand the absurdity of it. But we live in a bubble-wrapped society, like I said before. No one wants to hurt anyone's feelings. So we have to go along with everyone's religious belief. Let them express themselves in their own way. And on one hand, I don't see that necessarily as a bad thing. But being able to put a pasta strainer on your head is no more absurd, and this is kind of the point, I understand, than putting a hood over your face because of your religious beliefs. But equally, it doesn't solve any issues, and it doesn't even address them. Because what he's trying to address has already been addressed and already known. And all it does is make a fucking joke more than we already have of our fucking system. The system itself is flawed inherently. But let's, you know, point out more and more holes and suddenly everything can start to unravel and the ideas and protections that we thought we had suddenly start to devolve and and go away. Uh, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen over the next 20 years. But if history has taught us anything, it can fucking happen. So I I think this is just as just fucking stupid. Uh, he's probably being cheeky. He's probably thinking it's funny. I think it's fucking retarded. You know I don't care if he does it. You know he's fucking making his own fucking point with it. Awesome, do your thing. But you are a fucking jackass. It does not make you better, smarter, or more clever than people wearing a fucking hood or any other headgear for religious reasons. And Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster created as a total joke, has now just stepped into reality. I think it's just ridiculous. I, I think it's so fucking stupid. I know some people see this as, you know, a, a hail to arms or something of atheist versus uh, the, theology or something, but it's not going to do anything. It never, It never will do anything. Because you cannot rationalize with irrational people. And that's the entire argument behind atheists and uh, theologians, is, is that, that, that irrational versus rational minds. Stupid will be stupid. <laughs> it doesn't mean you have to act stupid to get through to them, because they're still not going to fucking understand. They're just going to rise arms. Anyway, that, that's my take on this little uh, blog I guess you would call it. it's not even really an art, art article at all. There are articles, and I actually have seen it addressed in, in different forums, but I thought this was, you know, a lighthearted little comment and uh, on, on the issue, and it's really as deep as I felt it needed to be delved into. <laughs> it's just kind of fucking dumb. Let's go ahead and move on to our next article, Sister Wives Stars to Challenge Utah Bigamy Law. This is... The Associated Press article, uh, written by Jennifer Dobner four days ago. The polygamous family featured on cable television's Sister Wives has filed a federal challenge to the Utah bigamy law that makes their lifestyle illegal. Attorney Jonathan Turley filed the lawsuit in Salt Lake City's U.S. District Court 
on Wednesday on behalf of Cody Brown and his four wives, Mary, Janelle, Christine, and Robin. Cody Brown is only legally married to Mary Brown. The lawsuit asks a federal judge to declare Utah's bigamy statute unconstitutional. Under the law, it is illegal for unmarried persons to cohabitate or purport to be married. A person is also guilty of bigamy if they hold multiple legal marriage licenses. The third degree felony is punishable by up to five years in state prison. Both men and women can be prosecuted under the law, which also applies to unmarried, monogamous couples that live together. Like most polygamists in Utah, Brown married the other three women only in a religious ceremony, and the couples consider themselves spiritually married. Formerly of Lehi, the Browns belonged to the Apostolic United Brethren, a fundamentalist church that practices polygamy as part of its faith. The Browns and their 16 children moved to Nevada in January after Utah authorities launched a bigamy investigation. No charges were ever filed, but Tuesday, Utah County Attorney Jeff Buham Buman <laughs> said that the investigation is ongoing. Turley, a law professor at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., said the lawsuit doesn't aim to challenge Utah's right to refuse to recognize plural marriage, nor are the Browns seeking multiple marriage licenses. What they are asking for is the right to structure their own lives, their own family, according to their faith and their beliefs, he said in a news conference outside the federal courthouse. Turley said the focus of the lawsuit is really privacy, not polygamy, and follows the principles of lawsuits like Lawrence v. Texas, the landmark 2003 U.S. Supreme Court case that struck down Texas's sodomy law and held that private, intimate relationships between consenting adults was constitutionally protected. The lawsuit contends Utah law violates an array of constitutional rights, including freedom of religion, free speech, due process, and equal protection. There's a host of constitutional problems when a state goes into a family and says your family has to look like ours. You have to live your life according to our values and our morals, Turley said. Turley said the Browns and other polygamous families shouldn't have to live under the threat of a law that makes them presumptive criminals simply because of their family structure. The question is, in this country is whether you can have a family that's different, he said. We're going to try and see if we can secure the same rights for the Browns as other families enjoy. In the past, Utah Attorney General Mark Shirtliff had said his office would not prosecute polygamy between consenting adults because it was focused on polygamy-related crimes like child abuse and underage marriage. On Tuesday, however, his spokesman, Paul Murphy, said the state is prepared to defend its bigamy law. Utah has not prosecuted a polygamist of bigamy since 2003, when former Hilldale police officer Rodney Holm was convicted of bigamy and unlawful sexual conduct with a minor for entering a religious marriage with a 16-year-old girl when he was already married to her sister. To her sister. Holm was 32. He served a year in jail and probation. 
Holm, a member of the Southern Utah-based Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, argued that a ban on polygamy violated his constitutional rights to practice his religion. The Utah Supreme Court upheld the conviction in 2006, although in a dissenting opinion, the state's chief justice said that the state unfairly applied the law to polygamists and oversteps the lines protecting the free exercise of religion and privacy of intimate, personal relationships between consenting adults. The U.S. Supreme Court also denied an appeal from Holm in 2007. The High Court banned the practice of polygamy, even in the context of religion, in 1879. Polygamy in Utah and across the Intermountain West is a legacy of the early teachings of Joseph Smith, founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mormons abandoned the practice of plural marriage in the 1890s as a condition of Utah's statehood. An estimated 38,000 self-described Mormon fundamentalists continue to practice, believing it brings exaltation in heaven. Most keep their way of life a secret out of fear of prosecution, although over the past 10 years an advocacy group made up mostly of polygamous women has worked to educate the public and state agencies in Utah and Arizona about the culture. This is a good time for the lawsuit. We've tried to set the stage for this for 10 years, said Ann Wilde, a co-founder of the advocacy group Principal Voices. We've really tried to help people understand that this is not a criminal lifestyle among consenting, I'm sorry, among consenting adults. That's the article, and here's my take. If they are of legal age to get married... If they are consenting adults, and that is really the point here, who fucking cares? If they want to marry two people or ten people, who fucking cares? As long as they're adults. What you end up finding in these polygamy groups is that it's not consenting adults. You have adults having children, and those adults consenting for those children to be married to older men. That's not the fucking same. That is not the fucking same at all. Children cannot be a part of an adult sexual relationship. That is fucking wrong, not only on our agreed societal standard, on our agreed laws, but just in general. That is fucking sick. But adults? Adult women? No big deal. I don't care. I don't care if you have one to three wives. I don't care if you have fucking 15 wives. As long as you're not expecting me and the state to support them. There's another caveat. So there's two now. One, consenting adults. Two, I'm not going to support your lifestyle. That's really all that comes down to. Now, if you noticed in that article, if you're paying attention to my mundane, (laughs) really monotonous tone... uh, the only reason why Mormons, the early Mormons, gave it up was so that they could join the Union. So that Utah could join the Union. That was the only fucking reason. Or else they'd still be doing it today. So if we as a nation are going to say that the caveat of marriage is consenting adults, why are we going to stop at one? Equally, why should we say one man has the right to marry multiple women. Let's flip that on its head. As long as everyone is agreed that you're adults, 
consenting of your own volition and not of your parents because you're underage, then uh, what harm is that? You know, we have to express ourselves as individuals, as human beings. I don't, I would never want another wife. I, I, I truly adore my wife. Uh, and quite frankly, I don't think I could handle another wife. <laughs> Just the, the hassles of marriage with one person seems to be uh, challenging enough at times. You know, it's not always a picnic. But um, I wouldn't want to bring another person in here. But I don't fucking care if someone else does. I mean, that's their life. Let them fucking ruin it or make it great on their own accord with their own wishes. As long as they stay the fuck out of mine. That's what I care about. So that's my take on this. Uh, Let people do what they want as long as they're consenting adults. Seriously. And Utah, you are a fucked up place. And I know because I fucking live here. And uh, I have a lot of uh, Mormon family. None of them are polygamous, but... Mormons are fucked up. So for them to turn against those Mormons that are holding with the original Mormon vision is pretty ridiculous. Because it's all political. That's the only reason they're doing it. It's political. And that's a sad fucking reason. But that's all I have for the Infernal Informant. Let's go ahead and take a short break. And at the end of it, we're going to jump right into the interview. And it's going to kick some ass. Strap your boots on. Let's move over to Creature Feature. The Satanic Scriptures hands down the wit, wisdom, and diabolical perspective of the Church of Satan's High Priest, Magus Peter H. Gilmore. These essays, articles, and diatribes have been collected from over 20 years of the High Priest's writings for his Infernal Cabal, some first issued in the pages of publications available only to insiders. From the magic of toys to techniques of time travel, Magus Gilmore leads the reader down a left-hand path where few will find what they expect. Magus Gilmore reveals principles of satanic ritual in a frank discussion of forbidden rites. What is a satanic funeral? How do Satanists marry? Find out now, as these unholy ceremonies have never been disclosed outside of the Church of Satan's hellish hierarchy. Here is the philosophy for those bold enough to be their own gods or devils. Visit thesatanicscriptures.com for more information. Released by Scapegoat Publishing. Available in paperback form from major booksellers and independents nationwide. Is this thing, is this thing on? All right, is it this thing working now? You got it. All right. Uh, this year's um, Citizens Against Decency uh, Book Award uh, goes to Stephanie Crabe and uh, uh, Motel Bazaar. It's, uh, yes, excuse you. It's, it's not just a uh, book. Photo book of uh, truck stop lesbians, wacko cult leaders, racists, trannies, and the uh, grossly obese. It also has uh, tits in it, which uh, I, uh, I can appreciate. Without uh, further ado, CAD Award for the Advancement of Immorality in uh, Books. Uh, with Stephanie, where are you, darling? Come on up. What, what, what's that? I, I was supposed to go Motel Bazaar by Stephanie Crabe. Available through scapegoatpublishing.com. Now available from Purging Talon is the debut authored book by Church of Satan Magister Matt G. Paradise. 
Bearing the Devil's Mark. Bearing the Devil's Mark is a bold and no-nonsense treatise on the subject of Satanism. Not from the perverse pen of bitter and jealous Christians, or even their pagan counterparts, but straight from the satanic perspective itself. Sex, love, politics, technology, the god religions, and more. All brought to you by someone with over 25 years of actively living the satanic philosophy. To order, log on to PurgingTalon.com. Bearing the Devil's Mark, new from Purging Talon. Do you bear the mark? You know, dogs are different than cats. And hey, what if Jack Nicholson were a- Hey, what if we are the world was sung by the cast of Friends? I think it might go something like this. Hi, everyone. I'm Jay Leno. Anyone remember when I was funny? Eat Doritos. Ladies and gentlemen, Dane Cook. Are you fed up with comedy that's made for the masses? Sick of stand-up comedian hacks with the same old routines that you've heard a thousand times before? Equally tired of shock jocks who equate loudness with laughter? Hello, my name is Reverend Bill M., creator and host of The Devil's Mischief, a show where every week I present a new hour of comedy and novelty of devilish proportions. So tune in to The Devil's Mischief. Visit devilsmischief.com or radiofreesatan.com to download the latest podcast. The Devil's Mischief. Carnal comedy clips and netherworld novelty numbers simply not made for the masses. Greetings, Fright Fiends. Hungry for a blood-curdling good time? Well, Terror Transmission brings you horror movie commentary like no other podcast. Listen in as your handsome hosts examine all of your current and soon-to-be favorites from the past. Tune in through iTunes or the show's official website, www.terrortransmission.com, where you can also find Horror Chat, on-site movie reviews, horror DVD release dates, and more. And don't forget to check out Terror Transmission on Facebook, MySpace, Twitter, and Flickr. Terror Transmission, the greatest horror commentary podcast ever. Before I start the interview, I want to let you know that we had recorded this initially with Google Voice, and then Google Voice went tits up. So we had to do it in an old school way with speakerphone and audacity. So almost halfway through the interview, there's going to be a dramatic shift in quality. That's why. But it doesn't matter because the content still kicks ass. So let's move on to the interview, shall we? Welcome to another episode of Creature Feature. Today I have a very special guest from Arkham Studios, Reverend Moore. Reverend, how are you? I'm fine, Adam. How are you doing out there? Uh, I'm actually doing pretty damn good right now. Uh, the, the weather is uh, giving me exactly what I want, and so uh, <laughs> everything's going really great. Thank you so nice. much for uh, coming on. I know you're a really busy man, uh, so I really, truly appreciate the time you're willing to uh, devote here to help educate my audience about uh, the fantastic work that you do. Well, Adam, it's certainly my pleasure. And again, you know, when you're a working artist like I am, you know, it's uh, any attention that anyone bothers to pay is always uh, something I'm very, very grateful for. And it's the people who buy the, 
you know, the my work, you know, with the sculptures that uh, allow me the privilege of continuing to be an artist. So uh, I'm never dumb enough to question it. So it's my pleasure. You know? <laughs> Fantastic. So uh, I, I normally go through a series of questions with these interviews. So um, how about we start uh, a little bit on the personal side at the very top here. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Well, um, as a child, I always really enjoyed drawing, and uh, back in the late 60s and early 70s, you know, we, we didn't have uh, sort of the pop culture that we do now. You know, for instance, if you liked monsters as a kid back then, all there really was was the, uh, the great Aurora monster model kits, and you'd get those, and uh, there certainly weren't a lot of art stores where you could pick up uh, clay and, and proper tools or have anyone show you how to make an armature, so what you did most of the time, if you liked that kind of thing, was... You'd uh, draw these monsters or copy them. Um, I know uh, Mrs. Gilmore is a, a, a rabid Godzilla fan, and uh, you know he's uh, you know comes from the same school in the same era. So I'm, I'm sure he'd give you pretty much the same answer on that. But uh, as time wore on, uh, the older I got, you know, certain materials and uh, mentors became available to me. I was extremely lucky. You'll you'll kind of chuckle at this. Uh, one one of my uh, mentors and, and dear friends is the uh, the American artist named Drew Struzan. You may not know his name, but you know his work. He's drawn every Star Wars poster for the last 30 years, all the Harry Potter uh, posters. He did wow. the most of the thing, the Muppet movie. And uh, at the time, I was raised a Jehovah's Witness, of all things. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Drew and his family, yeah, I know, it's uh, stranger things that happen, man. But uh, at the time, <laughs> Drew and his family were a member of the congregation. And uh, my mother introduced me to him. She was a realtor and, and uh, sold him his first house. And anyway, uh, I knew that Drew drew movie posters. And uh, once a week, I would take the school bus over to his place after Friday and have a Bible study. And it was all a ruse. I didn't really care about learning about the Bible, but Drew was passionate about the subject. But the, the, the pleasure was to be able to sit in his studio having to hear these excruciating Bible stories just for the privilege of watching him work. And I was there at the time when he painted the poster for the original Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Frisco Kid, oh, the Muppet movie. Oh, yeah. You know, one of, one of the great things, uh, and this will be of interest to fans of Satanism, is Drew had the uh, original art for uh, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, uh, the original Black Sabbath, Sabbath album cover. I remember going in there being so terrified by this absolute, you know, you know, horrible painting of, of you know, literal evil just oozing off a canvas. But, you know, in hindsight, I realized how lucky I was to be there at that point in time and to have the, the influence of this great, amazing man. And uh, we're still friends. Uh, in fact, I, I work with uh, Drew's son, Christian, uh, who followed in his dad's footsteps. And although Christian's not an illustrator, he's got uh, a creative graphics firm here in Los Angeles. And Drew comes in just about every day to uh, pick up uh, his grandson, Christian's son. So it's it's amazing this many years later, I, uh, you know, I'm still able to see this, you know, this great artist who is an influence on my life uh, almost every day. And uh, pleased to say I've got quite a, an extensive original Drew Struzan collection, you know, original art. I've got one of the first bronze pieces that he ever did. So it's uh, this uh, wonderfully kind man is, is still a big influence in my life. So uh, at any rate, uh, I know I sort of went off on a tangent there, but um, you know, right. uh, Drew would uh, tell me things like, uh, never settle for second best or, you know, when in doubt, never hack it out. I mean, he would always say, just push your art as far as you possibly can. And when you've done that, go even farther to make it better. So I've always tried to remember that aesthetic, and it served me in good stead once I decided to sort of switch disciplines from um, illustration into freeform sculpting. 
And, uh, again, you know, one of the, the privileges was to give Drew uh, an Edgar Allan Poe uh, statue that I had made years later for his birthday. And uh, he, you know, I, I had to thank him. I said, without you, I wouldn't have been able to do this. So, at any rate, that's the, the artistic influence. And over the years, I've been really lucky enough to make a living doing sculpture. Uh, for a long time, I sculpted monsters for uh, just dozens and dozens of monster movies. Then that gravitated into uh, sculpting for toy companies like Mattel Toys and uh, the Upper Deck Company doing sports figures of all things. So, uh uh, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's something that, uh, you know, it's hard to do these days in this present economy. You know, a lot of the people really kind of yeah. have their careers derailed by it here in the U.S. So, uh, <laughs> you do what you have to do to keep making a living and, uh, never forget that you're an artist and that's something to be proud of. You know, even if your computer skills may not be the best, you know, no one does what you do better than you do. So it's always good, uh, as Magister Coop told me once, invest in yourself. And, uh, again, another great piece of advice from a, a great satanic artist and a, a very good friend. Oh, yeah. So uh, I hope that kind of covers it without uh, boring the, the nine-cents listeners. <laughs> oh, no, I think they will be uh, <clears throat> quite enraptured by that story. That, that's fantastic, man. I, I'm a graphic designer by trade myself, and so it's it's always just, um, I don't know, I just, I just love stories like that, you know, hearing where other amazing artists came from and what inspired them, you know. Oh, yeah. And it, you know, it is cool. And and I'm the same way. You know, it's really neat to hear about some people. They're, they're lucky enough to hook up with someone who's a good influence on them, you know, with, you know, art and life in general. Like, you know, things like, you know, I remember Drew just, you know, browbeating me when I was a kid about being a good dad. And, you know, his, his life lessons are things that I never forgot. And uh, still, you know, they've, they've served me in good stead. So uh, we do the best with what we got and we go from there, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. And it, it is also really nice to hear that something good did come out of the Jehovah's Witness, <laughs> even if it ended up in a quite sinful <laughs> locality. It, it, oh yeah, it's it's kind of unusual. What what makes me chuckle is how many uh, Satanists that I've met who had this same kind of upbringing, and I don't know if you know they you know what initially lured them into Satanism was uh, you know kind of a rebellion you know against an oppressive you know cult, or if it's something that happened naturally, but. Time and time again, I'm so surprised someone says, you know, oh, my God, I was forced to stand on street corners in a cheap suit, you know, holding out watchtowers, and, you know, my friends from school would see me, and it's, uh, it's something that actually does take a while to get over. It's it's a very ugly part of life, I think. You know, so many people sort of uh, go on and on about uh, kind of fundamentalist Christianity, which is brutal in its way, but uh, they, they, they rarely bring up those... Uh, Good old American uh, psycho cults like Jehovah's Witnesses or Moonies or Mormonism, you know, it's, uh, you know, I think eventually most people break out of that mold if they have a, a brain to think with and uh, a heart beating, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so how about we transition a little bit onto the Satanism side? What, when did you first learn of or, or, or when did you first, uh, you know, become a Satanist, you know, realize that you were a Satanist? Well, I, I'd, like everyone else, I'd always heard the, you know, the nightmare lurid stories that uh, we'd read in newspapers or our parents might have said or we saw on TV about it being a bloodthirsty cult like the, you know, sort of hell-bent on world domination and they killed babies and they were evil and they had horrible sacrifices. Well, I believed it because I didn't know any better. And round about mm-hmm. in the late 90s, I'd actually met uh, Zena LaVey who at that time had just went off from the Church of Satan, and, uh, you know, she was clearly in a lot of turmoil at the time. And, uh, you know, I'm certainly not taking sides, but 
I felt bad for her. You know, it was a, my impression was that she was a woman, that uh, things didn't, weren't really working out for her on the home front, and she took her solution to the extreme, but she was always really nice to me. So once I'd met Zena, uh, I naturally became interested in it, and the first book that I read was uh, Blanche Barton's wonderful biography on Dr. LeVay, The Secret Life of a Satanist. And I immediately, you know, fell in love with, you know, what a cool life this man had. And, uh, you know, I know over the years it's been disputed, you know, well, are these things in the book, are some of them true or some of them not true? My feeling is it's like Dr. LeVay said. If, if he didn't, you know, exist, he'd have to invent himself because someone like that is certainly iconic in life. You know, different people, you know, sort of appear at different points in our lives and they're, they're triggers. They're triggers for things that are natural catalysts inside us. So and, uh, my thing is, if uh, LeVay didn't do all the things he claimed, so what? If it ain't true, it ought to be because it's a great story. <laughs> and I think he's, you know, yeah, by that merit alone, you know, he's certainly a, a wonderful sort of spearhead, you know, when, when he started the Church of Satan. At any rate, um, I read the book, and uh, ironically, it was given to me by a born-again Christian who said, you know, here, here's a perfect example of evil incarnate. And when I read it, I thought, no this is cool. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, over time, I uh, uh, picked up, you know, his books of the essays, you know, uh, Satan Speaks and The Devil's Notebook, yeah. and found myself in total agreement with everything that he said and was just stunned how funny and how what keen observations these essays were on human behavior. So once I got through those, I finally picked up the Satanic Bible, and I sort of avoided it. You know, like a film student would avoid seeing Citizen Kane because everyone says how great it is, and you're right. like, ah, I don't want to see it because everyone else likes it, until you watch it and realize how damn good it really is. And the Satanic Bible was no different. <laughs> yeah, I picked it up, and I was like, oh, geez, I, I get it. And like everyone always echoes, you see yourself reflected in those pages. And at that point, uh, you know, I talked to a few people that I, I knew were Satanists. At that time, Diabolus Rex was still uh, a member of the Church of Satan and a magister at that point. Yeah. And I met him up at the Lovecraft Film Festival in Portland, Oregon. Knew who he was, approached him, and we immediately hit it off and wound up sitting there talking for five hours. And I realized that I liked the guy regardless if we ever talked about Satanism or not. We were on the same sort of the same page. And, you know, since then, mm -hmm. he's departed, but that's okay. He's got to find his own path in life. We're still good friends. And he's still a great artist. Uh, always, yeah, you know, he's an attracted artist yeah, in life. So over time, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, uh, Magus Gilmore and uh, Magister Nadramia and was so enchanted by what super folks they were. And again, the same thing. I realized that if we never brought up the subject of Satanism, we would still be the best of friends. And to this day, you know, we are. You know, they, these people are are just so good at quietly leading confidently, you know, the organization of the Church of Satan into the, you know, the next decade. And they've been doing it for so long. I, I think uh, I think they're just great. I can't imagine anyone else doing a better job. So that it might sound like glad handing, but it's not. They're, if you've ever met them, you'll you'll know that they are are the real deal and genuine folks, good all around. So. Uh, over time, uh, I affiliated, like a lot of folks do, joined, and uh, have never regretted it, you know, and always sort of tried to put into it the best that I wanted to bring to it. And with Satanism, it's it's not a club for joiners, but it, it's kind of fun to do things, you know, like the 666 event, where, you know, it's um, people do enjoy getting together, and other people don't. Other people are absolutely lone wolves when it comes to that. I think... Uh, Magister Jim Sass put it best when he said, I like it just fine when it's just me and a book. You know, and that's his take on it. It works yeah. for him, and it makes sense. 
you know, other people like the camaraderie of uh, knowing others or doing group rituals or, you know, for the most part, doing them on their own. So, uh, anyway, that's sort of uh, my background in Satanism. And, uh, you know, as one more aside, being, being a dad, I've got kids. And, uh, you know, having grown up in a, a really rough religious environment, I swore that I would never push my philosophy on them, and I never have. And to them, it's just books on a shelf. You know, they know what my philosophy is, and, you know, certainly got satanic sort of objects out around the house that they see, but, uh, you know, they rarely ask about it. It's almost like some embarrassing, uncool thing that dad does. You know, I think every kid would be like that no matter what you did. So, yeah, so there it is. That's my background. Nice. Uh, do you mind if I ask you a, a little bit more here? What was it that, and I think you might have answered this in a, um, an off-handed sort of way, but what is it that made you make that leap from just recognizing yourself and declaring a living as a Satanist versus actually joining the organization? Was it that, that you did just meet these other people like um, the hierarchy and, and you just had such a connection, you just thought you should? Or, I mean, was, was there a motivational factor to it? There were a few, to be quite honest. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. I mean, it wasn't like a, an overnight sort of thing where Cinderella's coach turns into a, a pumpkin. You know, it, it wasn't that instantaneous. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess the, the other way around, the pumpkin turned into a coach. Um, I read the Satanic Bible. At that point, I was, um, you know, friends with Diabolos Rex. And, uh, you know, my take on it was I don't need to spend $200 to, you know, buy into this philosophy. You know, I can enjoy it as a book. And uh, for about a year, I sort of liked that and um, started doing really heavy ritual application in the ritual chamber. Uh, really enjoyed the, the ritual work. Uh, you know, I, I loved it. Still, to this day, I, you know, it's, it's, um, it's not a regular schedule, but I do engage in ritual practice quite often. At any rate, I, I was talking to Diabolos Rex about all this, and uh, he never once tried to get me to join. But after about a year, I started thinking... I started feeling a little parasitic, like I was kind of getting more out of it than I was giving back. And some people wouldn't take that attitude. Some do. It was just something that I thought I felt right about doing. So um, uh, at that time, I asked Rex if he would do the satanic uh, baptism for me. And uh, he spoke with uh, Mavis Gilmore and Magister Nagrini, and they said yes. And uh, we did, right there in his uh, studio in Portland, you know, with the walls painted black oh, and uh, incense burning. And, uh, again, that, that's uh, a hell of a way to be uh, inducted into the Church of Satan, you know, having the guy with the <laughs> yeah. horns in his head. You know, it, it was pretty cool. It, it was very cool. And to this day, it, it's cool. You know, it's um, it held great meaning for me. Like I said, even though Diabolus Rex has gone his own separate way, it's just things happen at different points in time for us. You know, in, in my bedroom, you know, there's I have very few pictures. One or, you know, you are of my children. One is of my friend Myla Nermi, who played Vampira, because we were good friends. And the other is, uh, you know, a, a photograph of my arms around Rex, you know, at that time of, of the satanic baptism. So things like that really wind up holding hold great meaning. Um, so as far as, like, really sort of coming out of the Satan closet, I guess would be the best way to put it, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, at the time, I was working for Mattel Toys when I joined the Church of Satan and kind of flew low on the, the satanic radar because when you're in a corporation, some stuff like that just doesn't set well with people. Yeah. Uh, layoffs happened right after 9-11, got laid off and started my own studio where I was freelancing, and I felt I was a little more free to be who I really was. And that, you know, 
meant, you know, sort of creating an online presence where a lot of the work that I started to do uh, was very in line with the satanic philosophy, or at least uh, things that would appeal to other Satanists, like the Anton LaVey sculpture, or, oh, gosh, uh, I can't even remember what other work I was doing at that time, but, you know, certainly becoming a member of the Church, Church of Satan inspired me to uh, sculpt Anton LaVey and really kind of do justice to the man himself. And uh, I like to think I did, but, you know, you, you never know. You know, if you brag about your own work, it's just that. It's bragging. But, you know, sometimes you can look at it and say, hey, you know what? That one turned out pretty good. Okay, that one's worth bragging about. I, I like to think that my heart was really into the LeVay piece, and it turned out pretty good. So, uh, yeah, you know, I'll break my arm back myself on the back there, but that one I'm pretty proud of to this day. So uh, hopefully that, that answers your questions about different things that can trigger those motivations at uh, different times in your life for all the right reasons. You know? Oh, yeah. So you started out as an artist, uh, and was it in those early phases that you started sculpting originally? No, not at all. I, I drew for years and years and years simply because I, I didn't know how to sculpt or, or where to go about getting the supplies. You know, back then when I first started pushing the clay, uh, it wasn't easy. I mean, I didn't know how to look for a sculptor to, to ask him questions, you know, like how do you sculpt hair or how do you sculpt a flowing cape or, you know, how do you look like someone, you know, a static object is actually in motion like a ballerina with beautiful, beautiful you know, taffeta around her. How do you get that illusion of movement? Um, I started looking in the phone book. You know, this was in the dark days before the Internet, so I started looking in the yellow pages for uh, monster effect shops. And I just went down the list one by one, and, you know, it's this geeky young kid who just wanted to learn how to sculpt. And most of the guys, when you called them, you know, it was a closed door. You know, it's this very much a, a clickish sort of thing. And there was this one guy at this place called Makeup Effects Lab who said, uh, yeah, sure, you're, you're just a dumb kid. Come on over. I'll show you a few things. And I did. <laughs> And he wound up giving me a job eventually, and, you know, I wasn't making a living at it, but I thought, you know, I, again, that's the kind of thing that you try and repeat in life. When people are nice to you, you do kind of try and pay it forward. You know, that's why when people send me sculptures, you know, and let's say they're in sort of the beginning stages of learning their craft, you never want to shoot someone down and be discouraging. You know, you, you try and, you know, find the good in what they're doing and, you know, do what people were nice enough to do for you when, when you were young. And In fact, uh, going back to uh, Drew Struzan, how he was such a, a harsh taskmaster. I remember uh, one time he did a, uh, an illustration for it was a, a record label, and it was this dragon sort of curled around a, an album. And I thought it was beautiful. And so in our class, I did kind of the same thing, pretty much ripped him off, drew the same kind of dragon. Yeah. But it was, I drew this big old dragon on a piece of paper that wasn't very good, and I realized there's no more room for the wings. So I kind of like you know, did, you know, the, the, the scrunched up little wings that could not have lifted this dragon off the ground. But I thought, you know, why why would I erase this magnificent dragon that I worked so hard to create? So I brought it to Drew, and I unrolled it with great ceremony, just waiting for, you know, the, the nuggets of praise and, you know, the, the wisdom that would support. And he looked at me, and all he said was he pointed at the picture, and he goes, you ran out of paper, didn't you? And I went, well, what? And he goes, you cheated. You cheated. Instead of drawing it over, you, you cheated, and, and it looked like exactly what happened. You ran out of paper, and it just destroyed me. But again, I realized he was right. So whenever I started sculpting figures, like let's say you're sculpting a likeness of H.P. Lovecraft, and, you know, you've got the, the shape of his head with a lantern jaw and, you know, the you know, the ears that stick out a little bit, and let's say the first yeah. detail you nail is the nose in the middle of his face, but it's in the wrong, you know, your your um, your symmetry is off. And so you start sculpting around this 
perfect nose that you can't change. And pretty soon you finish ahead, but the whole thing looks wrong somehow. And you realize you weren't willing to change. You know, you weren't willing to change the clay. And that's when you've got to destroy your favorite part of it, and then the whole thing will work. You know, being brave enough to erase a great drawing or, you know, smush the clay and just start over again. And that was the thing Drew taught me is never settle for second best. Don't hack it out. Keep pushing yourself. So that's what I try and do. <laughs> or what I try my best. That's great. <laughs> so what are some of the, the projects that you worked on that are some of your most favorite? Um, yeah, let's see. As far as sculptures, uh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm really happy with the way the Anton LaVey figure came out because um, it was close to my heart and, you know, it was given, you know, wonderful reference by, uh, you know, of course, uh, uh, Major Gilmore and Manchester Nadramia and uh, my friend Evil Wilhelm, who was a drummer for the band Radio Werewolf, and he knew Dr. LeVay. And he had some candid oh, photographs. Cool. And uh, while I was sitting there sculpting, we'd have coffee and he'd just tell me these hysterical stories about how funny the man was. And he does a great Anton LeVay impression. If you ever meet Evil Wilhelm, ask him to do it for you. It's pretty good. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I, I that, that's, that's the favorite. And... Um, uh, one of my newest pieces of work is a, a bust of Satan. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you, you struggle with the sculptures. You work so hard, especially if you're going for a likeness. But the thing that was fun about Satan were there, there were certain people that, that I knew that, uh, you know, were, were sort of an inspiration. You know, uh, Reverend uh, Entity in England uh, has this fantastic look. He shaves his head and he's got this wonderful sort of Fu Manchu mustache and this, you know, long beard, and he's so elegant and so classy, and I just, I liked his style. And so I had pictures of him when I was sculpting it, and even though I wasn't going for an actual likeness of him, his essence, his persona really sort of manifested himself in, excuse me, in that sculpture. And, uh, you know, again, you know, it, you know, it was kind of tough because there's sort of flames around this, this bust, and it's like, how do you sculpt fire? Again, how do you sculpt something that's not a solid object and make it look like it's moving? So I, I think I found a, a stylized solution. I mean, it doesn't look like actual flames, but it works for what it is. And uh, so, you know, as far as, like, sculptures that are inherently satanic, I was pretty happy with those. And uh, I did a bust of Lovecraft, you know, the last few years that I was kind of happy with, too. And, you know, when you know the, the real gauge when what you've done has worked is when other people say, wow, man, this is great. And there's no better form of applause than that. And that lets you know you're on the right track. Yeah. If other people are digging what you're doing, that's that's payment in itself. It, it really is. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm actually online looking at the website and uh, I'm looking at the uh, Satan bus and the H.P. Lovecraft bus and the Anton LaVey sculpture. And uh, the attention to detail is just, I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, the work itself is truly, truly magnificent. Um, can you... Tell us, when did you first decide to start Arkham Studios um, versus just working for other uh, corporations and, and, you know, uh, other other companies like uh, Mattel and, and Hasbro and stuff? Well, it's as, it's as easy as I needed a job. Uh, at that time, I'd been at Mattel for five years sculpting Barbies and Buzz Lightyears and all kinds of Disney toys, and 9-11 happened, mm-hmm. and they laid off half the design center. So I, you know, I got a nice little severance. Yeah, it was brutal, man. It was. I loved my job there. Lots of lots of great people, and I learned a lot from uh, sculptors who were, you know, I'll never be as good as these guys were. But they they really took the time again, mentored me, and, and taught me. So 
9-11 happened, got laid off with a lot of people and had no idea what to do, but I was still very well connected in the toy industry. And I thought, you know, I should kind of start my own studio. And at that time, uh, sculpting computer programs like ZBrush and Maya and Pro-E hadn't really kicked in yet. So I was doing everything by hand, and I was able to get a lot of freelance work. So I opened it, and uh, in between jobs for other toy companies, I just thought, you know what, I'm, I've never had a website. I'm going to kickstart this. And I think at, at that time, the only sculpture I really had was a, a 12-inch figure of H.P. Lovecraft. And that was the first thing I threw on there and uh, was my first introduction to the World Wide Web. And uh, I couldn't believe how easy it was to sell stuff. And all of a sudden, you weren't bound on, you know, taking ads out in magazines or knocking on doors and calling people. You know, you could, you know, the World Wide Web was, was great. You know, people that you never knew would, would find your website and they'd order. So that's pretty much how it started. And the fun thing about, uh, you know, when I opened Arkham Studios was uh, – it was a magical place. It really was. It wasn't just a sculpting area. You know, there were a few offices, and uh, there was a, a nice little foyer, and uh, really made it like a, an alchemist's uh, parlor, you know, with uh, just old antiques. Really? Uh, you know, one of, if uh, anyone ever visited, one of the things they really liked was the embalming room. I had uh, three embalming tables because I really love funeral culture and antique funerary items. So uh, I've always had a lot of hearses, so I was connected with people who were morticians, and they got me antique funeral uh, sort of apparatus like trocars, stuff to embalm people, original, you know, Whoa. chemical, you know, bottles formaldehyde, all this stuff. So I had so much of this crap that I decided to make a little sort of area that you could hang out and pretend that you were this vintage uh, embalmer or a funeral director. <laughs> oh, wow. I know it sounds weird, but it was cool and it was fun. So there was a lot of good times and magic happening at Arkham Studios. And uh, where it is today, um, you know, again, you know, it's it's all about making a living. And uh, mm-hmm. a while ago, I, I relocated to San Diego and went to work for the Upper Deck Company and started doing it out of my garage. And uh, it's tough to work a full-time job and sort of do your art on the weekends because it wasn't just sculpting when people would order there's a lot of labor-intensive uh, work that goes into, you know, casting and molding these figures and cleaning up the seams and sanding down all any sort of irregularities and painting them and packing them carefully to ship them. So that, that would really pull time away from sculpting. And uh, so I, the way I view Arkham Studios these days is I, I rarely get to sculpt new figures, and it seems like most of the time I'm busy, you know, sending out back orders, which uh, after the upper deck layoffs happened, the wonderful U.S. economy, Moved back up to yeah. LA and didn't really have a studio space. And the uh, the guys over at the HP Lovecraft Historical Society, uh, Sean Brandy and Andrew Lehman, uh, the, they're the guys who made the wonderful Call of Cthulhu silent film. They had a workshop, so they let me set up there and uh, you know keep on top of the back orders. But uh, it's work, man. One of these days, uh, well, my son has started helping me with the casting there, you know, with that sort of thing too. So the hope is that one day he's good enough to completely take over that where I can just sit on my ass and sculpt and be an artist again. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice. That'd yeah, be and by nice. the way, on the side, thank you to everyone who ever ordered an Arkham Studios piece that I still haven't sent out. It's coming. <laughs> I always like to acknowledge that. Sometimes when, you know, the easiest thing in the world is to fall behind and everyone's so wonderfully patient. So I always try and acknowledge that, that, you know, it's sort of like the postman. Sometimes they're late, but he always delivers. So I, I like to say thank mm-hmm. you to everyone. And if you haven't gotten it, it's coming. I promise. <laughs> Very nice. A little patience never hurt anyone. Exactly. You so, know, absolutely. Yeah. And, and honesty too. You know, if you, if you, you know, for all the good and uh, 
the bad we do in life, I find that if you own everything, you earn a lot more respect that way, you know, just by being a man about stuff. And uh, it, it's a good yeah, thing. It keeps everything above board. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of, uh, of, of honesty in all things, no matter what, even if it means you get knocked on the chin every once in a while. Absolutely. And, Adam, it, it comes back to our shared philosophy of, you know, responsibility to the responsible. I mean, I, I so believe in that, to, to be a, a person who, you know, tries their best. And we all fail. We're all human beings sometimes. But if you do your best to live mm-hmm. up to those systemic ideals, I don't think anyone can fault you so long as you keep coming through. And that's the goal is just to keep coming through. We try. We try our best anyway. So when it comes to uh, new projects or, or conceptualizing new projects, um, do you take the more commercial side, as in you want to create this um, because you think it might sell more, or do you want to just work on projects that you are personally connected to? And, and with this, I'm talking specifically in Arkham Studios' work. Sure thing. You know, you're, you're right. I think if you're passionate about something and you do something because you want one, like the Anton LaVey statue, no one has done one. Mm-hmm. I want you know, I made one. I mean, that's what it came down to. And Fortunately, other people seem to really respond to it. I think right after the LeVay piece, I thought, well, you know, when you're freelancing, you've got good months and you've got really slow months where you don't have any income. And I had kids to raise, so I thought, what can I do? What what would sell? And, you know, any time I've ever done that, sure enough, it bites you in the ass. I mean, you may make a great sculpture, but if you do something with money as a motivation, even though there's nothing wrong with that because we all need to make a living, I find mm-hmm. that whatever the unseen reason it generally doesn't do as well as the stuff you're passionate about. Like, for instance, the Edgar Brown Poe figure that I made. I love Poe. I'm not a huge fan of his of his writing. I'm much more of a Lovecraft fan and a Raymond Chandler fan, but I thought it would sell well. And did the best job I put on it. Came out, you know, again, I, I, I was pleased with the result and put it on the website, and it just didn't sell that well. I mean, it, it certainly, you know, I think to date I, I might have sold around a little over 50 of those things, but I thought I was going to sell a couple hundred. And uh, I talked to a friend of mine, this Edgar Allan Poe expert named Paul Clemens. And I said, Paul, what am I doing wrong? Am I not, you know, hitting the right Poe websites? What's the deal? And he said, well, I could have told you that. Poe collectors collect books. They don't collect statues. And I went, what? And he said, yeah. And he said, yeah, they're, they're real big on collecting first editions or just reading Poe or collecting Poe movies. They usually don't want to spend a couple hundred dollars on a statue, and he goes, I think that's where your problem is. So for a, for a Poe expert to tell me that, I thought, well, duly noted, point taken. So ever yeah. since then, I've tried to really sculpt stuff that I wanted and, and hope to hell it sold. You know, that's the reality. I think, yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it's like uh, Brad Doris in, in The Exorcist 3. He, he's got that great line where he's in a straight jacket, and he says to George C. Scott, did you know that you were talking to an artist? And he gets this imperious tilt of his chin. He's so arrogant and proud about it. It's like, well, that's all well and good. We'd all love to take that attitude. But when the reality of you still have to pay your phone bill doing your art, that's when it comes mm-hmm. down to you've got to give the people what they want to. So hopefully you can find that, that happy medium where you can do stuff that you want that other people will like to, and it'll help pay your bills, or like I said, at least you try. <laughs> yeah, Hope I'm not taking really. much of the magic out of the, uh, the art that way, but that's the reality. No, no, I think I think that's great, I, and I also think that any fledgling artist growing up need to hear stuff like that because, you know, it's easy to think, you know, you want to live as a starving artist when you're 
when you have nothing. But when you have kids and when you have responsibilities, sometimes you, you just have to go where the work is and sometimes work on a project you're not too happy about but still give it your all. And if you can do stuff that you're passionate about on the side, then you will benefit from it no matter what. And, I, you know, just you can't throw everything away as a starving artist and just pretend like people just don't understand you and that's why you're failing, you know. Oh, absolutely, Adam. I couldn't agree more. And, and you're right. I mean, there, there's no glamour in being a broke artist. It sucks. I've been yeah. You know, I think any artist worth their salt has all started from that point. And, you know, again, if, if you're lucky enough where your work clicks or you work hard enough at it year after year, eventually it will, you will find an audience. Absolutely. You know, it's, I, I'll, I'll tell you one, and this is a side note, one of the, the projects that I did at Mattel was I was working on the Toy Story 2 dolls. And I, I sculpted. There's, there's a character. I think it's a horse. I'm pretty sure his name is Bullseye, if, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. And you know, it was a plush toy. And the only things that I had to sculpt on it were the eyes, because they were made out of hard plastic, the saddle, and his hoops. And you know, knocked him out within a week. Didn't even think twice about it. It was just, uh, this is boring. I just want to get it off my off my desk <laughs> yeah. and start sculpting, you know, cool action figures again. Well, a year later, it comes out. And six months later, it winds up on the front page of the Los Angeles Times. As this, you know, one symbol of security that this poor, terrified child is going through is with a gun pointed at his head. He's holding what I made. And, and you know, it's kind of, you know, I don't know if I can say the word mind fuck on, on your... Uh, go podcast, ahead, man. But, well, I guess I already said it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mind fuck. You think, wow, you know, this thing that was so unimportant to me was so important to that child who I'll never meet in this moment in time that has nothing to do with me, but there it was as this icon of, you know, this juxtaposed moment, you know, you know, this guy with a gun pointed at a little kid and he's holding on to something I made. So, yeah, it's, it, it's kind of a trip when you do make a difference in odd, small, unexpected ways like that. And, again, it's not anything more than just, an, you know, an odd moment of seeing this picture. It's like, wow. So, could you give me a brief overview of what Arkham Studios is currently offering? Absolutely. Well, right now, um, I'm about to relocate uh, from Los Angeles to uh, an undisclosed location just out of California. Nice. Uh, I've uh, been able to obtain this wonderful Victorian house and uh, sort of keeping with a satanic aesthetic. And it's got a, a beautiful workshop on the premises. So once I get relocated to there, it might be about another month or so before the workshop's up and running. But uh, I look forward to it. Uh, as I said, right now I work for a creative graphics firm doing uh, a lot of the nuts and bolts business that you know helps to keep that business rolling. Yeah. But one of the reasons for uh, moving out of California is to get the expenses down lower so that I can enjoy the, the privilege of being a full-time artist again. That's where my heart is. That's what I'm good at. And, you know, in this day and age, and I digress for a second, sometimes it's so easy to feel insecure and doubt your own ability. You know, in, in this world of technology that changes so rapidly, you know, I'm finding that if you don't have good computer skills, you're almost re- rendered obsolete. And that can make you feel kind of bad about what you spent years getting good at. Yeah. But again, I remember the great advice I got of artists, you know, friends that I hang out with now or people in my youth. And, you know, that, that old saying that Mr. Coop said, again, invest in yourself. Because there's a lot of guys who can sculpt what I sculpt. Portraits or busts or likenesses. Of, you know, I like to think I'm the guy who sculpts guys in suits. Mm-hmm. You know, a guy yeah. with horns. But no one does it better than I do for 
subject matters that I've chosen. And I don't say that out of any sort of egomaniacal thing. It's just what I've spent my time doing, and I've kind of been fortunate enough to create this little niche where other people respond to the work. And if other people respond to the work, then I must be doing something right. So the goal is to get set up in this beautiful 100-year-old house and uh, continue the work and, uh, you know, live out however much time I've got left just doing what makes me happy. And that means pushing the clay and being thankful that other people like the work too. So other other projects that go beyond the Arkham Studios work is, uh, I'll, I'll be a little bit cryptic about it, but I'm going to be building a time machine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I know how crazy that sounds, but it absolutely will work, and it will uh, take the uh, uh, sort of uh, person who chooses to sit in it, not in the future, but into a past into an aesthetic path of their own choosing. And with this relocation to this new undisclosed location, the means will absolutely be there in a way that if you know me personally now, or if I happen to make your acquaintance and I like you enough, I may invite you to where I'm living, and you can go for a short journey back into time. So uh, oh, that's fantastic. take it forever and more. That's, uh, you know, it's... Um, one of the plans that should come to fruition within the next year. Aside of that, I'm just grateful for every day that's a good day. Right now, I'm in my black uh, satin pajamas, enjoying a good Cabernet, looking at this beautiful 18-year-old lady across the room and watching the <laughs> California sunset. So uh, that's not an empty brag. It's what I have at this moment. Right now, it's pretty damn good to be me. Hells yes. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> Well, you had mentioned the uh, Anton LaVey sculpture uh, a number of times, and I personally really want one. They are sold out. It shows on the on the website. Is is there ever a thought of uh, re-releasing those? Well, there there has been. Um, if anyone who really wants one now who didn't get a chance to get the bronze edition or the pewter edition, there's a uh, an occult bookstore here in California in the town of Sherman Oaks called the Psychic Eye. And they actually have about three or four Anton LaVey statues left. Oh, wow. So if you really want one, go on the World Wide Web. Uh, I think it's www.pebooks.com. And they sell my Aleister Crowley statue and the Anton LaVey statue, and I'm pretty sure they've got some in stock. Um, they, I'm, I'm quite sure they do. So beyond that, once those are sold out, that'll be it. But as far as doing a, another edition... People have asked, and it sort of it comes down to well, do I want to spend the money making the molds on it again and uh, committing to another fifty statues? Uh, it might be kind of fun to do a copper edition or a gloss black edition. You know, oh, which yeah. is kind of nice. But yeah, I'm thinking about it. I mean, a lot of people still ask about it, so I think you know, well, do I sort of retain the original limited edition aspect of the bronze and pewter editions and sort of you know leave it at that, where there's only fifty of each, and it makes it sort of a collectible. Um, Part of the thrill of, of that is I've never seen one for sale beyond the ones I sold. No one sold it on eBay. People got them, really seem to want to hang on to them. And I can tell oh, you, yeah. every one of those that I sold wound up in the ritual chamber of a Satanist. Every wow. single one. That's so many fantastic. people have sent me pictures of their altars with that statue. And it's an honor to even be, you know, on the same altar as a copy of the Satanic Bible. Or, you know, sometimes I'll see Magister Robert Lang's beautiful sculptures on there. It's, it's a privilege to be on that same angle. So it's kind of neat. You know, the intent was that the people who would appreciate those would get them, and they did. As far as doing another one, hey, if I get 50 people who definitely say, yeah, I'll take one, I'll do it. 
<laughs> oh, wow. I'm going to have to start a, a list here after I... <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, uh, Ryan, the artist with the eye patch and the tin cup begging on the corners, just go for it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, okay, so for the future, um, where can people find your work or contact you uh, about your projects? Well, uh, I still maintain the website. It's www.arkham-studios.com. Again, that's arkham-studios.com. Uh, got, you can order the works that are currently available there. You can email me there. It's, uh, I think it's uh, info at arkham-studios.com, or it's on the website. Yeah. Or uh, in this uh, modern age of social networking, I've got a Facebook page. I don't do MySpace anymore because that's so... Five minutes ago, 14-year-old teenage girl. So, just <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I deleted my MySpace page, and uh, even my, my daughter, Chloe, said uh, with her California accent, Yeah, daddy, MySpace sucks, so you need to get a Facebook. <laughs> so I didn't, you know, <laughs> she really talked like that. I love her, she really talked like that. So I'm on Facebook. Uh, if you find me there, just uh, I'm under my name, Brian Moore. So uh, drop a line and say hello, and I usually don't respond to friend requests that don't, you know, just include a brief message. Is like, you know, there's sort of a uh, thing I call the satanic friend collector. People just think it's cool to put Satanists on their friend, their yeah. friend list, which is pretty lame to me, so I don't do it. But uh, if you're interested in my work or, if, you know, you have something nice to say, uh, I'm always willing to return a uh, friendly hand that's extended in friendship. So Very cool. Yeah. Well, I got to so, tell you. out there if you want to find me. <laughs> All right. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me, Reverend Moore. It has been truly an honor. I, I think this is uh, one of the best uh, conversations I've had with a fellow artist uh, in a long time. So, you know, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, sitting in with me and uh, allowing my audience to get to know you and your work a little bit better. Oh, Adam, I, I, I really appreciate that. And that's very, very nice that you were kind enough to request the interview. And uh, I don't look at it so much as an interview as just a... Uh, Two people who share a wonderful philosophy, just being on the same page, just talking about real life stuff. So uh, it's nice when the Satan element comes into there. But uh, you know, I, I really appreciate you uh, having me as a guest on the show tonight. And I hope uh, anything I've said doesn't bore your listeners to tears or is not a cure for insomnia. Yeah, no. And as as a, a brief teaser to the listeners out there. Uh, we may be hearing from Reverend Moore on some different subjects that we've touched on uh, quite briefly tonight, so look for that coming this fall also. Uh, again, Reverend, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a true pleasure uh, talking with you. I am going to be picking up one of those sculptures, so I'm hoping it's there, and if it's not, I'm going to start a damn list, and we're going to get you to print some more of those some way or another. Um, That's wonderful, Adam, and as, as we always say in the ritual, Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Have a good night. And that's going to do it for another show. I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, or general comments you might have. You can visit the Undercroft, Facebook, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9cents and get updated on weekly topics. I'm also now on Google+, so add me to your circles for updates there. You can also listen to this show primarily through Radio Free Satan or... Alternatively, you can download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. You can also subscribe via iTunes by searching 9cents. And don't forget to leave a rating or comment. If you'd like to more, learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. If you'd like to meet other Satanists, 
visit undercroft at satanet.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit Radio Free Satan, an online streaming radio station. Once again, thank you for joining me, and as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, and until next week, Hail Satan. <laughs>